Morning. Good to see you this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're looking at verses 19 through 20. I'm going to dip into uh, verses 21 through 24 a bit as well, uh, but we'll come back to those next Sunday and look at those. I've entitled my message today, Good News for Godless Lawbreakers. Good News for Godless Lawbreakers. Um, and uh, by the way, that's how you're a lawbreaker, you're godless. You don't think there's anyone behind that law. And so I, I want us to look at this today. Paul here in verses 19 through 20 has entered into the sentencing phase uh, the, throughout these verses and, and chapters really, beginning in verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through to where we are right now. Uh, we've basically seen a trial going on. And what Paul has been laying out is he's been laying out the guilt of Gentiles and the guilt of Jews and that no one has an excuse uh, for rejecting God. God has made known his righteousness in this world. And uh, Paul has been laying out a case. He's been laying out evidence after evidence after evidence against the Gentiles. He's been making known that what's happened is they reject the righteousness of God. They reject the goodness of God. They even reject the existence of God. And the result of that is God continuously turning people over to their thinking and to the way of life that they've chosen. Something that we always need to understand is that light has come into the world. Isn't that great news? I mean, Jesus came into the world. Light has come into the world, and men have loved darkness. That's what's happened. Men have loved the darkness. And so uh, what we see here is Paul pointing that out of how men continually love the darkness by the way, when I say men, I mean women too, okay? Y'all know that. I, I, I'm not very politically correct. So anytime that happens, you know I'm bringing everybody in. Don't want any of you ladies feeling left out, okay? But I, I, I want us to see that Paul's been, he's been laying this evidence out over and over and over again. First, laid out against the Gentile. And then looking over at the scoffing Jews... Letting them know, what are you laughing at? You're no different. I'm talking to you too. You just do it from a different perspective. You knew better. God specifically gave you the law. He specifically called you out. He specifically gave you a purpose and meaning. And you pushed it away. That I want nothing to do with it. So he's continued to lay out the evidence for this. He's continued to lay out the evidence for God being right in judging mankind because of sin. He's the only one who can do it. Last week we looked at the closing arguments, if you will, uh, regarding the, um, the case against Jews, both Jews and Gentiles. This week, we're looking at the sentencing phase. You can kind of see that in what he says. The whole world may be held accountable to God. It's easy for us to think we 
have no accountability, but I assure you, everyone is accountable to God. Everyone will stand before him one day. And that's the scene here, the sentencing phase. There's some things I think we can glean from these verses. And I want to point you to three things. First of all, the need for us to face our condition. The need for us to face our condition. Secondly, I want us to acknowledge God's provision. Acknowledge God's provision. And lastly, it's very important for us to choose to believe His Word. To choose to believe His Word. Paul begins here in verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's our condition. Our condition is that we will all be held accountable before God. Notice what he says. Now, we know. We know something. What he's talking about there is, and I believe that he's here speaking specifically to the Jewish people. What he's saying here is that this is a common problem. This is a common problem, and it's not just a problem that the Gentiles have. He says we have a common problem. It affects all mankind. It affects everyone. He's going to say here in a few verses, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a common problem. There's no one on the face of the earth today that doesn't have this same problem. And that is the problem of sin and rebellion against a sovereign, loving, gracious God. It's a common problem that we think that we are the captain of our own ship. It's a common problem that we think we're okay. It's common because it produces the same effect as Gentiles experience. So it affects the whole world. And especially here, the Jews he's pointing to. Y'all may recall the Old Testament. One of the things that Amos pointed out is you're looking forward to the day of the Lord, but that's going to be a day of doom for you. Why? Because you rebelled against God. You didn't live out what God called you to. You walked in unrighteousness rather than righteousness. 
You didn't observe what I commanded you. The day of the Lord's not going to be a good day. And Paul's very much reiterating that here. It's common. It produces the same effect as Gentiles experience. Thus it affects the whole world. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Of Romans, by the way. Romans 1.18. I don't think I'll get out of Romans today at all. I think all my references will be in Romans. Look what it says, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what got things started in this line of thinking. This argument that Paul's been laying out. Godlessness and wickedness or unrighteousness. They affect the Gentile, but they also affect the Jew. We all see all kinds, uh, see the condition of mankind all around us. And it's uh, been true for every generation. We see uh, rampant wickedness and unrighteousness all around. Why? Because of godlessness. That's what he says in verse 18 of chapter 1. That godlessness and unrighteousness pervade mankind. The result, calamity, chaos. We know that whatever the law says, by the way, that's all-encompassing, whatever it says, everything that it says, whatever it says, it speaks to those who are under the law. By the way, the, word, the phrase here, under the law, is not the same concept as we're going to discover in Romans chapter 6. Uh, this is actually better translated in the law. Those who are in it, those who are, know it, those who are uh, bound to it. Whatever the law says speaks to those who are in the law. And I want you to know the law speaks. You can't keep this. Here's what is right and true and good, but you can't keep it. And you won't. Why? Godlessness and unrighteousness. One exists because of the other. Say, why do people walk in so much unrighteousness? Because they are godless. I believe Paul's being intentional in verse 18, chapter 1, when he puts godless in front of unrighteousness or wickedness. One is the result of the other. 
We see it in this society's. We see uh, around us sexually transmitted diseases. And I want you to know, they would cease in a generation if everyone would live pure before marriage and pure during marriage. They would cease in a generation. Murder will cease if everyone will practice loving their neighbor. If we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, guess what? Won't be no murders. Theft will be eliminated if everyone will work and be content. Why does this not happen? Godlessness leads to unrighteousness. They suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. I already said that in a different way before. Light has come into the world, and men have loved the darkness. We're talking about Facing our condition. Of looking truly at ourselves. Now wait a minute now. I'm not trying to get you to be all introspective and a little bit of psychobabble or anything. You know, well, I'm not that bad. You know, I'm okay. You're okay. I'm a little better than you, but you know. I'm, I'm not saying here anything but this. You cannot compare yourself against other men and other women and say, they're Christians, I must be okay. There's only one thing we can compare ourselves against, and that is the Word of God. Both the written word and the living word. Nothing else. Our condition is nothing but darkness. That's it. It's like a jeweler. Are there any of those anymore? You go to some fine jewelry place and they, what do they do? They, you want to see a ring or a necklace or something like that. They've spent a large amount of money with lighting in a jewelry store. They know precisely where to lay the piece of jewelry so that it will look its finest. But before they ever take it out of the case, they lay down a black velvet material. and They bring that treasure out and they lay it on that. And those lights hit that thing. And a lady's heart goes like this. Man, if you want to know, it's the same way 
a smoking ribeye he is laying on a plate. Okay, I saw everybody go, yeah. All right? And I want you to know the contrast between the darkness and the shimmering gems that are on that counter is the contrast that exists and even greater between you and me and the living God. There is nothing, no redeemable quality about any of us except that which God has put forward. You were created in the image of God and he chose to redeem you. Darkness is all that you love apart from God Awakening your heart and your mind toward the condition of your soul. Paul saying that everyone will be held accountable. He's pointing to the condition telling the Jews the law doesn't prevent you from being wicked. The Gentiles are accountable to God. Jews, you're accountable to God. Why is the law there? Why is it speaking to those who are under the law? So that, here's the purpose of that. Every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. No one would be able to speak any type of justification whatsoever. Everyone's accountable. It's like the judge asking the defendant after he's uh, the the. The verdict has come in and the sentencing during the sentencing phase. The judge asking the defendant, do you have anything to say? And oftentimes what you'll have here is a plea of mercy, you know. But here there's all the evidence is too clear. There's nothing that the defendant, you and I, have to say. He's completely right in who we are and what we are like. Totally and completely. I don't know if any of y'all kept up with the trial of Alec Murdoch, but after a while, it finally came to an end. In the sentencing phase, the judge sat and just laid out all the things that came out and his own disappointment, and his own shock at everything. And he asked Alec Murdoch, do you have anything to say? And he said this, 
I would never under any circumstances hurt my wife Maggie, and I would never under any circumstances hurt my son Paul Paul. That's all he said. The judge went on to the sentencing and gave him two life sentences that meant nothing according to the weight of evidence. But what Paul's saying is this. You see, that would be an arrogant man who would say, well, let me say this, and you know, maybe he'll change his mind. Say the jury was wrong. No. There's nothing to boast in. There's nothing that we can say. Absolutely nothing. I mean, we sit before the judge. We sit before the sovereign God. And here's what we say when he says, on what means shall I justify you in the things that you have done in keeping the law? And here, here, listen. This is the response of all mankind. Are you waiting for me to say something? Because I'm done. That was the response, the silence. That every mouth be stopped. That no one would be able to say anything. We have nothing we bring before him. Nothing. If you're in here and you've been struggling, man, I don't know. Am I born again? Have I been redeemed? Has he justified me? The first thing you have to notice is your condition. That's part of the good news. Is that you would be able to see how unworthy you are to say anything back to God. How unworthy you are. claim eternal life, to claim anything that justifies you. No defense, no justification. We will have nothing to say apart from Jesus Christ. No human being, it says, for by works, verse 20 of the law, no human being. You see the comprehensive nature of what's being said. That speaking both Jew and Gentile. No human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what the law does for us. It doesn't redeem us. It makes known that we need redemption. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 7, 7. He's asking that question, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? No. But it doesn't do what you think it'll do. 
It won't save you. But it will let you know you need to be saved. I mean, I wouldn't have known what coveting is. Except that it said, thou shalt not covet. And when it said that, well, that stuff's rampant in me. I covet everything. That's who we are. So Paul's laying down the sentence, you're not going to make it. Now listen, I'm not going to be much longer. But I tend to make much of conjunctions. And in verse 21, there's one you need to pay attention to. Because in verse 21, it says, but now. I like that. This conjunction is not merely making a connection between the sinful, dark condition of who we are and our hope. He's turning the table. He's going into a whole new thing. But now, today, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the law that points out your sin, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, and he's going to point that out. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace are declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. But we acknowledge His provision. Paul points to the righteousness of God. Wait a minute, we were just talking about the unrighteousness of God. Uh, that uh, back in, in chapter 1, where it speaks of the wrath of God has been revealed. But here he's speaking about the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made known. Go back a couple of verses, and it says in verse 17, okay, one verse, bad at math, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is that? It's the gospel. Paul points to the righteousness of God. The gospel is fully made known to all and it is apart from the law. The Old Testament speaks of it as to come. And those in the Old Testament who were saved... We're saved apart from the law. They were saved through faith. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. No other way. No other way. But now. Now. Today. Right now. Seeing 
the desperate situation you are in and the darkness that pervades your soul. Now, in the preaching of the gospel, does God open your eyes? Does He open your heart? Does He help you to see that the only thing that will resolve the issue of your dark, depraved life is Jesus Christ alone. He turns it. And from here on out, hope. From here on out, the gospel. From here on out, the goodness of God being poured out. Oh, by the way, I want you to know what we've been talking about is the goodness of God too. God could have just left us alone and left us in our sin and left us ignorant of the darkness that we were in. In other words, I'm not presenting to you the bad things of God's gospel and the good things of God's gospel or the bad things of God and the good things of God. I've heard that junk coming from preachers and I want you to know there's nothing that's not good about God. Nothing. Even His wrath. The righteousness of God that's through faith in Jesus Christ for everyone who believes. And what we need to do? What's the response? We need to choose to believe. We need to choose to believe and repent. Those two things go together. They're not separate things. One doesn't come after you've done the other one. Someone charges you a quarter for a piece of gum. You don't give them just the head's side. You give them all of it. Conversion is... Both faith and repentance. It's two sides of one coin. For all who believe, who turn away from sin and turn toward Christ, for all who believe, and we have to choose to believe. I thank God for His mercy. I thank God for Ephesians chapter 2 that says, the God... What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. What is it that Jesus said? You must be born again. You must be regenerated. You must be made alive. Why? So that you can believe. Because I want you to know, left alone, you will not Believe God. Left alone, you will not call on the name of the Lord. If salvation is only up to us, in a free will type expression, nobody will be saved. You know why? Because light has come into the world and men have loved the darkness. You won't do it unless God 
awakens you. And then what do we do? Decide to believe him. Oh, and everything is new. I'm not talking about how you feel. I'm talking about what you know. And what we know is that Jesus Christ died and he was buried and he rose again. And it speaks of what he did on the cross, that he bore our sin. But what good did that do? Well, when he came up out of the grave, he didn't bring your sin with him. He paid for it. It's gone. He overcame death, which means that sin has been done away with. <laughs> uh, if he's in a charismatic church, they'd be on their feet right now. It's okay, I'm Baptist. I mean, hallelujah, that he's made us alive. Hallelujah, that he saved us. Not by anything we've done. Nothing. Not by works of the law. Not because I lived righteously. I'm going to get to heaven one day and I'm going to be looking around (laughs) trying to shake off the sin that's still there. Because I hadn't been walking, I hadn't been living, I hadn't been doing all the right things. A bunch of self-righteous people in this world that talk about, you know what? If you sin, you lose your salvation. you got to get it back before you get to heaven. I don't even know what that means. What a miserable life that would be to think you could lose. But you couldn't get on your own. Lose what only God can give. Have you trusted Jesus and Him alone for the forgiveness of your sin? Not what you've done. Not the nth degree of how you're morally better than someone else. Not because you practice discipline better than others. Not because you're more loving. Not because you give more. Not because you don't miss many Sundays. but only because your hope is in Jesus. And that's it. That's it. We all wake up every morning just thankful. Not because we're still alive, but because if we're not, the gospel is true and I am redeemed. You know, one of the beautiful things about our redemption 
one that were redeemed in light of all the things I just said at all, that he saves anybody. Some of you are the most moral, upright people I know. And you're not. You don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve heaven because of that. It's really all about Jesus. Our salvation is. It's all about him laying his life down. It's all about him willingly stepping out of glorious place. It's really all about him who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame. The joy set before him instead of the joy set before him. That's what that word means. For. Instead. Anti. Instead of that joy. What joy was that? Do you all know that Jesus, eternal in the heavens, before he stepped into this world, was Praised by the angels continually. He stepped out of that. Stepped into this gloomy old place. And died for our sin. I want us to see that that sacrifice. That pouring out. We're called to remember. And that's what we do today. We remember. We have the Lord's table before us. We remember. I want us to enter into that now. Move toward this ordinance. Remembering Christ's sacrifice and what he did on that cross. That he bore your sins and mine. For the sins of all who believe in him. When we come to this table, we're renewing our commitment through faith and repentance. I believe. I still believe. Not only do I believe, but I'm devoted to a life of repentance turning away from sin and toward the righteousness of the living God. And it's also this realization of a future hope, a hope of always being with him. That's what this table is, when we take the bread and we take the cup, remembering and realizing a future hope that is ours. A meal that's like this, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who are invited to it, that's a good thing. And our invitation comes through Christ alone. I want us to take a moment here to consider 
our own hearts before God as we take this table. And I want to take a moment to, to, of instruction to say that this ordinance is for baptized believers. Believers who have been baptized. In other words, those who have partaken in believers' baptism. There are some children here today. I point this out every time. It's an opportunity to teach your children about this ordinance. An opportunity to teach your children the gospel. The broken body, the spilled blood. But if your children have not professed Jesus Christ and been baptized, they should not take this ordinance. If you're a guest today, you're welcome to participate. If you are a baptized believer and a member of an evangelical church that preaches the gospel, salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you'd be permitted to take this ordinance at your church, you can receive it with us today. If you, in your examination of yourself, find that you have in you, that you are boldly living in unrepentant sin, you shouldn't participate. I want to take a moment just to pray We'll do so silently for a moment, and then I will pray for us as we partake of this ordinance.